This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. The UN says some 815 million people around the world don't have enough to eat, and that number includes those living in hunger here in the United States. Joining me to talk about hunger, food security, and food insecurity is Ambassador Ertherin Cousin, visiting fellow at the Center on Food Security and the Environment at Stanford University and distinguished fellow of global agriculture at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. She's the former executive director of the World Food Program and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. agencies for food and agriculture. Also joining me for the conversation is Kimberly Flowers, Director of the Humanitarian Agenda and Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. And thanks to you both for joining me. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Thanks for this opportunity. And Ambassador Cousin, I have to say that I am thrilled to have you here especially because I don't think we've ever hosted anyone on Smart Women, Smart Power who is one of the 500 most powerful people on the planet, uh, one of Forbes' 100 most powerful women, and Time's 100 most influential people. Well, thank you. (laughs) It makes my mother proud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is truly an honor. I want to start the conversation with, I guess, a bit of a disturbing statistic. After a decade of progress, the number of hungry people around the world has gone up. Um, Maybe it's one in three people in the world is malnourished. What's happened? Why is this trend reversing after progress being made? Well, much of the increase is directly related to conflict. What we know is that because of the the ongoing conflicts in uh, Somalia, Yemen, South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria, that we, where we were on the brink of famine in 2017. Um, we saw an increase in the number of people who are hungry. And just recently, the UN has now raised the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to a level three food security emergency. And what does that mean, level three? It means that it is the highest level of that you have uh, a growing number of food insecure people and that um, the, there are access challenges to providing food assistance that require the effort of the entire UN system. That's really, really troubling. Um, And conflict is not something easily reversed. But what should happen to address the issue? Well, first of all, you need peace. You cannot begin to create sustainable responses to food insecurity without peace. And uh, when there is no peace and there is an ongoing conflict, Syria is included in that. The difference between Syria in its eighth year of conflict and South Sudan on why we don't have a, a potential famine in, in Syria versus South Sudan is access. And the challenge of humanitarian access during periods of conflict is directly related to the increase in severe food insecurity. 
And I want to ask, a, a circle back to something you mentioned, the countries on the brink of famine. That's something like 20 million people who could be impacted. Uh, but I don't hear a lot of conversations in the, in the regular press about countries being on the brink of famine. Uh, how do you get more attention to this? And I guess more importantly, what has to happen for people to be helped? Well, I am proud of the international community and the response that occurred in 2017 because the alarm bells were raised early. The U.S. government, in fact, increased its contribution to WFP in order to assist in addressing the potential for famine in the countries that we've talked about and to support those 20 million people. The, the challenge of going from being on the brink of famine to famine is directly related, I said, as I said, to access and also to raising the financial resources that are necessary for, to, for humanitarians to purchase the tools that are required to address those the needs of those who are food insecure. And in 2017, it happened. Mm -hmm. The bells were rung loud. They were rung early. Humanitarians planned. Dollars came in. Babies did not die, except in one county in South Sudan. And that was directly related to access. Even in Somalia, where in 2010, 260,000 people died because of lack of, lack, lack of access and lack of uh, sufficient financial resources for a full humanitarian response, it didn't happen. But the hunger season ended. We got into the planting season, and people were able to, we were able to meet the needs. But there's another hunger season coming this summer in 2018, and we still have a drought in the Horn of Africa, and we still, the, the conflicts in South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria, and Yemen are ongoing, which means that farmers aren't farming to provide the need for assistance, and we're going to again find ourselves in a situation where we need these kinds of conversations to raise the alarm again to ensure that the financial resources come forward. Yeah. And I, I would you're you're exactly right, Arthur, in the, in the sense that we have all the tools we need to do early warning. We know we have all the amount of food we need in the world to feed all of these people. It's a matter of peace. It's a matter of political will. It's a matter of good governance. And it's a matter of international attention and funding to make it happen. One point I think I'd like to emphasize, too, is one of the phrases that was going around last year was four famines. And it's important to note that, as you as you mentioned, only one actually was classified as famine and the others were on the brink of famine. And I would add that, yes, DRC is at level three, but FuseNet, the Famine Early Warning System Network, funded by the U.S. government, also has Ethiopia as level three. So really, we're looking at six countries that in 2018 are suffering some, some severe food insecurity, and it's going to take an international effort to curb that. I'll also say that it's, you know, you mentioned, why don't people know about this? There was a study last year that 85% of Americans were unaware of this food insecurity. 85%. And I think it's because the way we consume media is so different these days because of our current political landscape and what is taking the attention in the news media has taken over from basic global affairs that, that many people that are educated want to know about, but they're not seeing it in their news feed. And something else that I wanted to ask about in terms of, of contributing to countries being on the brink of famine, climate change. I know you've made the connection between the two. Can you talk about how it's related? 
Well, as uh, just noted, um, Ethiopia is a level three. There is no conflict in Ethiopia. The challenge with Ethiopia is drought. Uh, We are going into the fourth year of drought in the Horn of Africa. And uh, I've been very proud of the Ethiopian government in their response to this famine because the largest contributor, financial contributor, to the response in Ethiopia each year has been the Ethiopian government. But the problem is so large because the drought has gone on for so long that the country no longer has enough financial resources to support the needs of the population that is potentially affected now by this drought. We also don't talk about hunger in the U.S., and that's something that you've also worked on. Mm-hmm. In addition to having uh, been at the World Food Program, you were also involved with, I believe it at one point was called America's Second Harvest, but it's now Feeding America. Yes. Talk about hunger in America. Well, hunger in Amer- I was, Feeding America is the nation's food bank network. There are 200 food banks across the United States that support approximately 54,000 uh, pantries, shelters, soup kitchens around the country that feed over 50 million people every year. One in four people in a line in the United States at a, at a, at a food pantry or at a soup kitchen is a child. Uh, we see a growing population of seniors who are accessing assistance from food banks and from soup kitchens and pantries on a regular basis. Um, The challenge that we have in the United States is that while we have increased number of people who are employed, we also have a significant portion of our population that is underemployed. And as a result, the money that they earn is not enough for them to meet their financial commitments on a monthly basis and afford enough food to feed their children for the entire month. Even those people who who are receiving SNAP benefits, the SNAP benefits often don't feed the family for the entire month. And as a result, you have a family that the their safety net then is a food bank um, or is, is a pantry or shelter. Um, that's a difference between hunger in the United States and hunger in a developing country. We have social safety net programs here from our federal benefits, state benefits through SNAP, as well as our philanthropic community that provides assistance at the community level. When we talk about ending hunger in the world, we're talking about not only creating economic opportunity, agricultural development, but also creating those kind of social safety net programs so that when people fall through the cracks, they need not go hungry. It's interesting to me, one in four in a food line is a child, and there's an increasing number of elderly people uh, who are are going hungry. But this is the United States. There's not a drought. It, I mean, this country has had some drought, but there's not a drought that's keeping crops from growing widespread. There are supermarkets everywhere, but as you mentioned, the underemployment problem mm-hmm. keeps people from from having enough money to eat. But I find it astounding that that kind of number is in this country, because I know that most people, when they think, when you talk about food insecurity, um, they automatically think of what's going on overseas. Mm -hmm. How do you change that kind of perception and make people more aware, or at least raise their consciousness of how many people in this country are hungry? Just as we do with global hunger, we talk about it. 
We talk about it to our elected officials. We talk about it on our news shows. We talk about it in our communities. Um, we, For a very long time, there were churches all over the country that would always talk about poverty. Every faith in the world believes that no one should go hungry. And so bringing this back into the pulpits where we recognize and acknowledge that people in our communities are going hungry, that they're falling through safety nets, and we need to make sure that we have the tools there to catch them in our country so that no one goes hungry. Because you're right, this is the United States, and no one should go hungry. We also need to talk about things like a living wage and ensuring that people have access to, who work every day, have the ability to to feed their family without making decisions between paying a doctor's bill because they don't have access to insurance or p having enough money to feed their family for an entire month. I've, I've actually sat with women who um, they were living on the edge and they found themselves in situations where they were forced to, a, a, a tire blows out on a car. And that takes away any cushion that you have. And so for the balance of the month, you need to go to the, to the food pantry in order to have enough food for your children to eat because you, have, you must have the car in order to continue to drive to work every day. Those are tough decisions that people in, your, in every neighborhood in this country are making every single day. In too many neighborhoods, I should say, not every neighborhood, but in too many neighborhoods in this country are making every day. And is it because someone who maybe is underemployed, their neighbors may have no idea because they see them go to work every day. They see them put their kids on the school bus and they go to school. That's not the picture of hunger that a lot of people have. Yeah, and I also think that there's opportunities to talk about food and then broaden that to hunger in ways that we haven't had. And what I mean by that is that you see um, a change in the last decade or so in terms of people caring more about where they're buying their food, how their food is being grown. We see a big difference in what consumers want and how that's changing for the ag food system. And that presents an opportunity because most of those people are well-educated and well-meaning. And if we can find a way to tap into that group who are care more about where their food is coming, that they can better understand of how other people are don't even have access to food, much less quality food. I mean, we also should talk about nutrition at some point because, you know, people may have food in their bellies, but what kind of food do they have? Because it's about the nutrition they're putting, whether it's here or in the developing world, and how more processed foods, the rise of obesity, I mean, is astounding. And that's a global trend that we also need to work on reversing. You mentioned my very next question, because at the same time, we're talking about this incredible issue with hunger, I read a statistic that said obesity uh, uh, kills roughly the same number of people each year that hunger does. And that's Obesity an is actually growing faster than hunger. Really? Because we're yeah. seeing that what we call the double burden of obesity in a lot of emerging countries and middle-income countries, where you have people who have suffered from undernutrition when they then that when they then see economic growth and they experience economic growth, they adopt Western diets, more sugar, more salt, more carbohydrates. And as a result, they go from undernutrition to obesity. And so there are many countries today where you have uh, a portion of the population suffering from undernutrition and a portion of the population suffering from overnutrition or obesity. And we also in this country, in the United States, have a growing obesity epidemic in our country. The 
challenge that you see with undernutrition is primarily in the first thousand days, where a child who does not receive the appropriate micronutrients in those first thousand days is stunted both mentally and physically. And the that stunting cannot be corrected through the lifetime of the child. And that child, what will result is underperformance in school as well as uh, underperformance in life with, we see lower GDPs, we see um, lower ability to perform in, in the workplace. Um, and on the other side, with overnutrition, what we are seeing is an increase in non-communicable diseases, asthma, heart disease, diabetes, that again affect the child's performance in school and then affect the GDP of the country because of the growing health care costs of overnutrition in that country. Yeah, I think that's what's really changing a lot of political leaders' mind and why we've seen movements like the scaling up nutrition and many other things globally that has, has created new, better nutrition policies or more investments in nutrition is because it comes down to economics. Um, I mean, there's the moral imperative. There's, you know, uh, like you mentioned, there's the irreversible damage that happens in those first thousand years. But the bottom line is that when it affects your country's economic growth, leaders are more apt to make some real changes. And maybe that's making that connection is the conversation that needs to be elevated. Well, in fact, when I was at WFP, one of the things that we often did for governments was in developing countries were surveys to determine the impact of undernutrition on the GDP of the country. And that was what got the attention of finance ministers and not just health ministers and agriculture ministers, was the when they could see that their projections for GDP growth were potentially dramatically affected by nutritional uh, impact or undernutrition impacts of their population. Let me remind you, you're listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk. My guests are Ambassador Arthur and Cousin, visiting fellow at Stanford University and distinguished fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. She's the former executive director of the World Food Program. Kimberly Flowers is the director of the Humanitarian Agenda and the Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. Follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women. I'm at Beverly Kirk. Follow Ambassador Cousin at Ertherin1, and let me spell that for you. It's E-R-T-H-A-R-I-N-1, the number one. Also, follow Kimberly at Kimberly Talks Ag. That is a great <laughs> Took Twitter. us a long time to come up with that, so thank you. <laughs> that is a great one. You won't forget it. Kimberly Talks Ag. Uh, very, very appropriate. Both of you are on Twitter. I follow both of you, so I know that you are very prolific at promoting a lot of the issues that we're that we're talking about today. Um, I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the U.S. being a leader uh, globally in terms of humanitarian and development assistance. Um, the Trump administration's proposed budget recommends cutting some funding. Are cutting in half for initiatives like Feed the Future, uh, which is part of the U.S. global food security strategy. Um, talk about why it's important for the U.S. to continue helping to reduce hunger and improve nutrition in the developing world. And I'll just throw that question out. Kimberly, do you want to take it? 
I, I think one thing to, to keep in mind is, is the U.S. is a global leader on this. And when we lead, others follow, whether that's donations to U.N. agencies or creating reform policies or working with national governments on their own strategies. And so if and we've made huge strides in this. I mean, when you look back, um, you know, at, after the price spikes hikes of 2007, 2008, it was President Obama and many others, but it came together and said, we really need to increase attention and funding on agriculture development and nutrition to address the root causes of this. And we've come a long way. And and just, you know, just two years ago, not even was the Global Food Security Act passed by the U.S. Congress. It's up for reauthorization again this summer. But now is not the time for us to scale back. Now is the time for us to kind of to scale up and continue to be a leader because this is so critically important to our national security interests, to, again, economic growth, and, and of course, to our American values. And I just would add to that. I agree with everything that's been said, but I would also want I add that I'm in town this week because the Chicago Council on Global Affairs just issued a report on the youth bulge in agriculture and what we need to do to ensure that as we see a growing population across the developing world, that we continue to invest in the agriculture development activity that is necessary to support the stability in those countries where we're going to witness these uh, increases in population. And on Monday or Tuesday, we presented that to a bipartisan committee, a bipartisan group of congressmen uh, on the Hill from both the House and the Senate, where there was a significant embrace of the recommendations by both sides of the aisle uh, that for supporting food security. And here in the United States, food security, our particularly humanitarian response to uh, food insecurity has enjoyed bipartisan support. And that is a, the basis of who we are as Americans. We believe in humanity. We believe that children should not go hungry. Many would would suggest that we do it because it is in our, our national uh, security interests. Okay, but it's also the right thing to do because we believe in humanity and we are still the leader of the free world. And Kimberly, you've talked a lot about national security as it relates to food security issues. Um, remind our listeners about some of the issues you've covered here. Yeah, well, I, I think when you look back, I just mentioned about those food price spikes in 2007, 2008, and it's important to keep in mind there were several dozen, about 40 different um, moments of unrest or instability around the world, everywhere from Haiti to Madagascar, of governments toppled and people protesting because they didn't have enough food to eat, because they couldn't access the food, because the government wasn't being responsive enough. And so going back to that word that you mentioned on stage today in your panel, you just mentioned now, is about stability. So it's important for us to invest in these overseas because we want stable environments. And while it's not always a direct link in the sense that there's food insecurity, so there's going to be an Arab Spring uprising, there's definitely causalities there. And it, it adds to sort of the the um, frustrations that a population may already have. And so it's about stability. And when you have a secure food environment, then you have a stable community. And that's really important. We And, and I just want to add on to that, that we need to understand the difference between food availability and food uh, accessibility and affordability. In the food price spikes challenges that we witnessed, as, as, uh, as, we, as Kimberly just noted, um, what we saw were middle class people unable to purchase food. 
again, working class people in the population, these weren't the poor who were in the streets. These were people who could no longer afford food that was available in their country because of price spikes in food. And people who are accustomed to working every day and having their governments respond to them, when those populations suffer food insecurity, you will begin to see instability. And we are, I am in the process of performing some ongoing research in this area because I think it's important that we get a better understanding of how much hopelessness does it take, how hungry must a population become before they start to migrate, before they start to protest, and before conflict occurs. Those are questions that are directly related to our own national security here in the United States. And as migration, immigration, are issues that continue to get a lot of attention. I don't know if we all think about it in terms of people will leave a place if they can't have access to food or if there is no food to be accessed. I've, I've spoken to many migrants. Seventy percent of those who migrate out of their country are under 30 and male. And what you find is they are walking because of lack of opportunity at home. I have never met anyone who was migrating out of their own free will. Uh, they there's mig- a motivator. Something there's a motiv- motivator. Something there's made a catalyst. Them, yeah. And that catalyst is lack of economic opportunity, lack of access to food, inability to feed their families. And they then go where they believe there is opportunity available. They will not stay. The first migration is never across the border. The first migration is always to the urban areas. But what happens is we're seeing in many developing countries increases in population, the uh, increases in urban areas and lack of jobs in those urban areas, and then people migrate across their borders. We see it on our southern border, and we're seeing it into Europe from um, from Africa as well as from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to tell a personal story. About a year ago, I was in Djibouti, and I was doing research looking at um, both refugees coming from the Yemen crisis as well as migrants coming from Ethiopia and trying to talk with them to determine sort of what were the triggers, what was the last straw that really kind of brought you here to harrowing conditions. And I, I used to live in Ethiopia. I spent for three years in Ethiopia quite a number of years ago with USAID. But here I was in Djibouti talking to young men. They were all quite young, early 20-somethings, who had on plastic flip-flops and had been walking for four days straight, nonstop, just to try to reach an area for this hope. They were hoping to reach the Middle East. So there's there's also this, um, this hope, right? They want to give back to their families. They're hoping for a better life. They can't find it in their communities. They couldn't find the jobs when they went to the cities. So they will do whatever it takes to try to find something better, even though along the way they're not getting the right kind of food they need. You know, they show up in poor conditions. They can't get the support they need and they're going to be turned around and sent home. So it, it's really difficult to hear their personal stories, but also um, very important to understand what is those final triggers that makes them do something that to us seems pretty mm-hmm. unfathomable. And it's an incredible story. Uh, I want to ask about um, uh, the systems that are in, that are in place to try to address some of these issues. And you were uh, you were at the World Food Program and you understand the UN system really well. Um, are there 
reforms that need to happen to make sure that that food is getting to the people who need it in in these kinds of situations? Every agency can always perform better. The When I was at WFP, and it's continuing under Executive Director David Beasley, who is my uh, successor at WFP, our program efficiency uh, activities um, and collaboration between agencies to ensure that we are not that agencies are not overlapping in how they are performing work, targeting as well as planning that will ensure that we are meeting the populations in need and that you are providing the assistance that they require. All of those programs um, have begun and will continue to be ongoing. Whenever you are spending taxpayer dollars, whether it's Canadian taxpayers or U.S. taxpayers, or any place from around the world, you have a responsibility to continue to make your programs ever more effective, ever more efficient, and to continue to provide value for money. And there are efforts ongoing to do to perform that work, but we must do more, and th- those who are performing the work must always do more. And are there bureaucratic burdens that could be lifted or pushed out of the way in order to make it easier to respond not only to the issues that we've talked about with migration, but to the larger hunger issue? It's a question that requires a long answer because you've asked two parts of a question. There's the humanitarian response and there's the development activity. And on the humanitarian response, one of the challenges that we've overcome um, in the last five, six years is our ability to respond faster um, by using money to preposition food so that when you can plan for an upcoming crisis, you can move food faster. There was a time when it took 30 to 45 days to move food from one part of the world to another in order to respond to a crisis. We're no longer in that situation. Um, but I say that at the same time that the U.S. is one of the, is the largest donor to WFP, for example. And because of the, uh, the and Senator Corker spoke about this mm-hmm. this morning. Passionately, uh, the, I might passionately add. Passionately <laughs> about the uh, U.S. flag requirement uh, for the movement of food aid from the United States slows down food aid tremendously and also costs money that could that could you could redirect into purchasing more food to feed more hungry people. And so that's a bureaucratic um, challenge that we are hopeful this farm bill will overcome. Um, a lot of progress has been made in local and regional purchasing to ensure that we are purchasing from um, the, the closer to the community that is affected At the source. by hunger. Um, and, and not necessarily at the source, but closer, but closer. to where um, the affected population is located, reducing your transportation costs, reducing your distribution costs, giving you an opportunity to use those dollars then to purchase more food to assist more people in need. 
Um, on the development side, there is uh, more work to, to that we must do around programs like Feed the Future here in the United States to support the kind of agricultural development that creates sustainable food systems from farm to fork that will ensure our ability to move from saving lives to changing lives. So that work from the United States, from the development side has begun here in the United States to create better programs. And that's what the Food Security Act was about. Um, that was passed by uh, the Congress and uh, and is continuing, the, the USAID continues to implement it. The UN agencies are working through uh, this, the new Secretary General to, to create development programs where the agencies are planning together, implementing together, so that the outcomes are not just an agency outcome, but what the community requires. So that work is ongoing. We could have another conversation. I ask you to invite me back and let's talk <laughs> With specifically about what it takes for us to overcome, whether it's bureaucratic challenges or development challenges, so that every dollar that we invest, particularly because those taxpayer dollars that are being invested are delivering the outcomes that we are responsible for um, providing um, to the populations we serve. And since you bring up tax dollars, and we've brought up a couple of times now of the U.S. being a leader in funding this and giving, since we're talking about WFP, which is is where you used to be, Youth Run, but um, we, the U.S. gives $2.5 billion out of $7 billion total to WFP. Now, David Beasley, who was here last week, and that's why I have that statistic in my head, um, has been able to increase the number of both the U.S. government as well as other donors to give to WFP, which has been a phenomenal success on his end. But I think it's important to keep that balance in mind. So people who are concerned that this administration is not giving as much or continue to be a leader is wrong. We actually very much are, um, not only uh, increasing our leadership, but, but very much being the leader in terms of um, funding for this. Well, I wish that we had more time to talk about this, but we have run out of time. But Ambassador Cousin, we will have you back, definitely. Kimberly, you're here. We can talk to you all the time, but we will definitely have you back, Ambassador Cousin. Thank you very much. And I, again, remind your listeners, please follow me on at Earthrin1 on Twitter, uh, E-R-T-H-A-R-I-N-1. I talk about these issues often, and the only way we're going to make the change that we need is by ensuring that we have the information that is required. Thank and, you all for caring. And thank you so much. We're at Smart Women. I'm at Beverly Kirk. Kimberly is at Kimberly Talks Ag. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.